well as social exclusion, it grieves the heart of God, but there's more to it than that. Uh, these people groups are actually gifts to God and gifts to the church and gifts have always been gifts. The, the priority God demonstrates that these people on the margins were always meant to be the center of the church. Um, they have a humility and a dependency that is a gift to the world. Uh, it's a mirror for the world. And um, it's also a reminder that God came as an outsider. And these, these people, this quartet that we see is uh, honored throughout the Old Testament are some of the very first and significant witnesses of the incarnation of the child that is Christ. It's interesting. There's this impoverished minority couple, Mary and Joseph. There's this widow who's been praying for years in a synagogue, outside the synagogue. There is a a fallen country that takes in refugees, Egypt. It's, it's a wonderful reality that you see these people groups being some of the very first welcomers of Jesus. It's a reminder that we are outsiders welcomed in by other insiders who were once outsiders and welcomed in. Like when somebody who showed you the way of Jesus and the works and his, and, and his words, you recognize that, that, yeah, that seems like an outsi- insider, but they were once outsiders, And Jesus himself was an outsider coming in. And it's a great opportunity to be thankful. Just to be grateful as we think about Thanksgiving. Reminder that we were once outsiders. And um, I thought just like an obvious follow-up question to what are you hoping for would be, hey, what's one thing you are thankful for? And before uh, before I just have you guys share that, I wanted to share one person that I'm really thankful for right now. And I wanted to point out Tony. Tony, I wanted to sing uh, praise of one of the unsung heroes of Water's Edge. Tony is here. He's not on stage. He's, he's not preaching, but he's here every Sunday morning setting this place up. We have like a Sunday team where like you do once a month, and don't let Tony be the model because he's here every day of the month. Um, he's a great, actually let him be the model, but he's here because of the joy. And because of him, He's really helped buoy us at the water's edge as we seek to plant our feet as a church. So I just want to give Tony just like a little recognition. It's a, it's a, a clap of hands. <laughs> He's probably hating right now, which is great, or loving it. Just a little book uh, about Psalm 23. Shepherds look at it. Wanted to give that to you with a note in there. So thank you, Tony. We appreciate you. We're thankful for you. Yeah. And then uh, now is an opportunity just for us. I think we're going to come hang at the table. There's, I feel like there's good spacing here. You can wrap around. And as you come, I would love us to just share what we're thankful for. And I'll continue the conversation about where we're heading with the title, Learning from the Poor Among Us. And if you want to get a coffee or refill your coffee, now's a great time. It's a pretty good spot. Oh, and we got, oh, I got, some, yeah, actually, yeah, we got, some, we got something else. And just have a conversation. What are you thankful for in this season?
I got this. You got this? Oh, these? Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll do an announcement for that, and I'll take this too. Oops. That's okay. Let that fall. These are, which one are they getting? This one. This one. What's happening? Grab one. Actually, just take the tray and pass it. Actually, no, I should do it. I, I should do it. I got vegan and gluten-free here. Anybody along that, that train? I think that's what these are. Yeah, yeah. Why not? If we're hanging out, might as well do it right. Yes? Well, you have a kid in your hand. Naomi. Regular, yeah. Vegan and gluten-free, anybody? Vegan, gluten-free? I believe these are vegan and gluten-free. Uh, Broad, Broad Street No Company. Believe these, these are called Vlugan, which are vegan and gluten-free. There you go. You're welcome. Take one. Just take one. Okay. All right. There's more here. Yeah, there's two right here. I'm sorry, I missed you. Take them. No no Take them both. Okay. Oh, no, this one. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take another two minutes. Is this family right here? Yes. Hey, how's it going? I'm Andy Kelly. Hey, nice Thanks for joining us today. Nice to meet you. I'm, I'm Mary's mom. Hey, Mary, mom. I'm what up, dude? Vera. Vera and Bill. Yeah, glad to have you here. You. So we're just changing it up this Sunday, which is kind of fun. Okay, cool. Good to see you, Eric. Are right, you ready, Drew? Okay. So take a look around. 
This can also be church right here. This can also be church. May we be flexible enough to see that. And I have some exercise for us, but I also do have a message. And I think the message is decent, so I'm going to keep going with it. I might give myself a pause or two or ask a follow-up question, but we're just going to try it out. How are we doing, Tammy? All right, sweet. So the title of today's message is, is Learning from the Poor Among Us. And I think when we think about the poor, our, our messianic tendencies, our savior complexes can kind of rise to the surface in a very unhealthy way where we consider the poor as something to check off, uh, to give money or give food, even to build a house in Tijuana. Casey and I did that for years. Uh, to go on a short-term missions trip in an impoverished country. Um, even to become a safe family can become something that we just check off. Um, if, if we're doing it just to, to fill off the missions bucket or to fill in the missions bucket. And, of course, mission matters to the heart of God. It matters um, a lot. We talked about that last week. Jen and Grant talked about it. Like it's part of being the church, having a collective purpose together, which is why we have our aunties and uncles ministry. But I, I think we fail many times when we simply just check off the box that see that God has something for us as we, as we live for others. That's one of the paradoxes of faith is that God has something for us as we seek to live for others. And so I just want to turn to our scripture today, because we're going to see a theme rise, and I don't want to give that theme away. But um, we're going to look mainly at Matthew 1, and we're going to dabble in some Luke. We're looking at the Advent narratives, and uh, if you know anything about the Gospels, there's four Gospels written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, if you haven't seen the Chosen series, you got to check it out. This is the way that they think through critically and, and, and beautifully what that looked like in real time. I just want to encourage you, like, don't watch another series about, like, you know, heartbreak and marital distress and affairs. Like, watch The Chosen. It's really good, you know. Um, but Matthew is, um, they really portray Matthew so well in that series. But Matthew, what we know is Matthew was a dreaded tax collector turned follower of Jesus. He was somebody who was, well, fiscally wealthy, but at the same time socially discarded, hated among his fellow Jews and used among his Roman bosses. And uh, Matthew was likely a Levite, which is a priestly lineage, which him, made him all the more hated by the Jews, in which uh, he was oppressing by colluding with the Romans. And so I think what you could see is Matthew has a, has a high priority for those who are socially disgraced. And I'm going to be saying that term a lot, socially disgraced. When I say that, I'm not saying God disgraces others. I'm saying society, people are disgraced by society because God likes to demonstrate his grace through those who are socially disgraced. That's what he loves doing, is to demonstrate his grace through those who are socially disgraced. And Matthew's priority was communicating to his Jews that Jesus is the king for all people. So he's communicating that also to his Roman bosses, which is kind of fun to think about. And uh, a theme that we're going to be looking at in this next year as we think about that as we think of 2022, is a theme from Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the merciful, uh, for they will receive mercy. In fact, next year, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Matthew's gospel. We're going to look at it over a year. We might mix it up a little bit during Lent because I, I want to draw back into the Old Testament a bit. Uh, and you might think, oh, that's a boring Bible study year, but there's actually some amazing conversations that percolate to the surface. 
especially as you consider uh, the different socioeconomic, sociopolitical groups that Jesus is interacting with, there's a lot that tells us how to embrace others in our society today. There's some really difficult conversations also about giving and divorce and purity that we'll be reigning into, but that's where we're gonna go in the next year uh, as we seek to be scripturally grounded. I'm really looking forward to it. It's gonna be a fun one. And so that's, I just, the larger theme will be blessed are the merciful because I think mercy is the connective tissue between love and justice. And if we're not merciful to others, we're not gonna reach God's broken world. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, Matthew sets up his whole story in the beginning with the genealogy, and there's three lists that he gives. And I'm not going to read every name, but I will point out some really cool names in that. The three lists he gives essentially help distinguish uh, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, and then the people becoming the Jews. You're looking at the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which the people of Israel meant to be a blessing to all people, then the Davidic covenant, and even thrown in there is uh, the Mosaic covenant. All these covenants are being fulfilled in Jesus. If you remember anything, is that Jesus is fulfilling uh, this Old Testament desire for a savior. So um, one thing I want to know about is you look at the series of names, you'll notice some that are out, uh, underlined, uh, namely women. There's Tamar, who was a Canaanite uh, widow who uh, justly seduced her father-in-law who became the line of Jesus. There is also Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. Prostitution that day was uh, almost always a result of poverty and harsh circumstances. She was a faithful woman who, who allowed uh, God's people in to um, Jericho. There's Ruth, who is a Moabite widow, who was faithful not only to God, but also faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And um, she, she's in Jesus' line. As you continue forward in the next set, there is uh, Uriah's wife, who's Bathsheba. She was raped by King David, um, and then her husband was killed by King David. And uh, still God used that social disgrace to demonstrate his grace. And then finally you have Mary, which most people don't know. Mary is probably somewhere in the age at this time between 12 and 15, which is wild to think about it. She's an impoverished minority uh, in, in a Roman culture that is not her own. And so uh, women sometimes are in genealogies, but this is really specific in Matthew's genealogy to make note of this, to note these women, uh, that God works through uh, faithful, humble, obedient servants, which every one of those women were. Just an incredible, incredible thing, especially as you juxtapose them to the kings and, and even some of the brothers of um, uh, like Judah. You look at them the kingdom that Israel had was a failed experiment. Even King David, uh, at the end of his line, became a somewhat of a failed experiment. And uh, it's just wild how God loves to use social disgrace to demonstrate his grace. Just wanted to just help you know that. Um, so as we consider the poor, I think there's like a pick there just to help our mind's eyes. We consider the poor... Whenever you walk by somebody, you, you kind of witness the conditions. Your senses can be overloaded. Um, sometimes we don't see God's grace. We see social disgrace. That's something that we see. We wouldn't say that out loud, especially to one another. But in our hearts, sometimes we think, get your blank together. Get a job. 
think clearly, take a shower, have some self-respect. Um, and yet God uses the poor, the poor among us, to demonstrate his grace to us. He does. You see that as we continue Matthew's gospel. The stage is set now for this young Joseph who becomes the legal, uh, has legal rights to Jesus, a very common man who's part of minority culture, who's essentially enslaved. Jews were being taxed into slavery. I don't think a lot of people are doing that. They were taxed probably up to 80 to 85% of their income. And it says it this way, Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Um, I think that's one of those lines that we could throw away. Um, Joseph finds out that his betrothed is pregnant. His life plans are changed, and his response is one of honor and dignity. Uh, Mary actually could have lost her life uh, for this disgrace, but instead of doing that, he chooses dignity, and he, he, just, he chooses to, to preserve her life. And so I don't think, we don't have a lot on Joseph in the New Testament, but we do know from this account that he's a pretty honorable man, and God has for him a pretty honorable woman. Let's, 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 meanwhile, in Luke's gospel, this is what's going on with Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at this words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. This is an angel visiting her out of nowhere. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his Dave, father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God, and even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. This is John the Baptist. And she, who was said to unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Other translation says, for nothing's impossible with God. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant, she answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And um, I think what's awesome here, I don't have this in my notes, is that God was waiting for Mary's consent. That's not part of the message, but it just, it's, it's, I just want to note it, like, God was not going to impregnate her with, by the Holy Spirit without her saying yes. And I think that should help inform some of our theology on dating and marriage and sex. Uh, I believe sex is reserved for marriage. We, we believe in our last series we talked about we get to love all the outside and we love all the inside. But just to even know that there's a theology of consent in the Bible, that's pretty neat. All right, I'm going to back on I think what's also clear is people would, Mary knows this, but people would constantly judge her. The legitimacy of her marriage and family would always be undermined. By saying self, by saying yes, yeah, she's essentially aligning herself with those even further on the margins. So there should be a pattern here arising as we look at Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And, and what's beautiful is Mary writes a song about that. It's a song I read earlier. It's called the Magnificat. 
even with the subsequent consequences of being outcasted in many ways by a lot of people, including her family, she, she, she sings with joy. She writes in verse 52, he's brought down rulers from the thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. So I just want to finish up with Matthew's account. After he had considered this, this is being Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because you'll save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to his son and he gave him the name Jesus. So before I jump into our conversation for today, I'd love for you to just take time, a moment right now, and say, hey, what stuck out to you from that, that reading or those readings? Anything that stuck out to you as, you as we heard those scripture, a word or phrase? So anything that just popped out to you? Maybe share it with your neighbor. We see it so many times. We, like, we tend to read it every year. But is there anything that just pops out to you as you, as you read Matthew 1, as you recall what happened with Mary? We don't have to talk about it, but I am going to take a bite of my donut. <laughs> the consent. Pretty amazing, right? Oh. Those are two different things, right? Yeah. Then. So, uh, very good. So, in a world, in a world that loves to push disgrace, God is communicating grace. I just think that's huge, and I think we need to we need to really take that in as we consider the poor among us, um, because the poor are not a task. In many ways, the poor are our teachers. The poor are not a project. In many ways, they're our professors. Um, the poor is something that we're all aspiring to in many ways. In fact, there's a gift called the, um, the gift of poverty or the gift of mercy. And uh, yeah, just to embrace poverty. And uh, I, I know there's a lot of layers to this conversation, but I still think the poor has a lot to teach us. 
And so I just got three things I, I, wanna, I, I want us to learn from the poor today. Um, the first thing, as we look at this impoverished couple, as we look at this whole catalog of people and seeing the most faithful people being these women who are just in stricken circumstances, um, I, I, I think what Matthew wants to communicate as he chose a life of poverty is that the poor teach us about our own poverty. When we consider the poor, when we look at people on the streets, when we consider hopefully some friendships we make as we commune with the poor, they actually teach us about our own poverty. That's one of the major reflections is that the poor teach us about our own deep need uh, for dependence, our own humility, our own brokenness. Matthew, wealthy tax collector, and yet he recognized he was spiritually impoverished. And so he decided to live in humble circumstances to learn what it means to be filled by God. And so this, this series and this message, I, I want us not just to be like considering how we can serve, though we should always be doing that, but how do we align ourselves with the poor? How do we align ourselves with the widows and the orphan? How do we align ourselves with the aliens or immigrant or foreigners? And I, when I say we're all poor, I'm not saying it the same way. We definitely should be using our resources for the sake of others. We definitely should be giving a voice to those who don't have a voice. In fact, if we don't do that, that's pretty much the downfall of the church. Um, it ignores God's provision in our own lives. But what I am saying, when we align ourselves with those on the margins where God is, when we listen, when we learn, when we serve, we recognize that we're more alike than we think. We're a lot more alike than we think. So when, you ask, when somebody asks you for money or, or, or food, we, we recognize our own deep need for God's provision. Rather than judge or criticize, I think we need to be reminded of our own humility when we see people in the street. For you know the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that three through his through that we, through his poverty, might become rich. I, um, I mentioned safe families. Um, we are safe family, and um, we try to be open to what God has for us. And it, it, we haven't done it in a while, and we, we've, we've just been in a busy season. But we sense from God, oh, it's, time, it's probably time to invite some kids in. And, and it's not because we want to check off the list, though. That can be the intuition, Hey, look at us. We got these extra kids. Aren't we this model family? It's about what we can learn. It's about what your kids can learn. It's about what your extended family can learn because the poor has a lot to teach you. We had this one kid for, we had these two kids, our first ones, for three weeks. And uh, it was a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. And they live in humble circumstances. They do. Nothing like, I know most of you, if not all of you, and none of you live anything close to the circumstances they live in. And I remember this kid, and um, he was fairly emaciated when he came with us. But he also annoyed me a lot. You know, he was like, never ate what I gave him. Really hard to get to bed, which is hard when you're trying to put six down. You know, you're like, dude, get to bed. But every night when he was in bed, he would ask me to rub his back and sing to him. Rub his back. He's like, hey, can you stay here for a while? And at first I was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And after a while I was like, oh. This is great. And I, I, if you know me, I only know one hymn, which is Amazing Grace. I need to learn more hymns. <laughs> but, yeah, and I realized that I rubbed this kid's back that, like, oh, this is me. Like, I want someone to, like, tuck me in at times. And I'm a tough guy. Like, I'm not, like, I can do a lot of pull-ups. I'm a decent fighter, la, la, la. 
but I'm also very tender. But you know what? So are most, if not all of you. We recognize that we want somebody to sing to us and hold us and rub our back. We recognize our own poverty when we serve. It's like, oh, this is me, God, and this is him. This is us. So um, it's, it's just the reality. Um, the poor are not a task. In so many ways, there are teachers. Uh, second point, the poor teach us how to care for others. They teach us how to care for others, not because we're caring for them again, but by witnessing their lives and communing with them. They actually show us what true fellowship can be. Joseph and Mary gave a very, they, they, they received God's, what I would call, strenuous plan and lived for the sake of others. For the sake of others. But it started small. The way they started living for the sake of others was caring for this kid that was theirs, but at the same time wasn't theirs. That's the mystery. When you look at Christ's ministry, it started small in a backwoods province uh, uh, in a Palestinian area. It's about inviting people into your own humble circumstances. It started small with sharing meals, giving a bed to somebody, sharing a word from God about healing someone by listening to one story at a time. And if you observe the poor, that's what they do. They take note of their lives. They, 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 they show us true fellowship. Uh, can we consider the community experiencing homelessness. In that community, there is little pretense. The care for one another is something an abiding church should aspire to. From what little experience I've had, and I've had some experience serving them, particularly with our old church, uh, they always opened their mats, their tents to others. It was an incredible thing. And um, I love meeting in this chapel. I do. And I love Light Church's hospitality. And I, I do think God is using that church to do amazing things. And I am so grateful for them and what God is doing. And I'm grateful they're at La Paloma. But there are days that I do miss the greatness of La Paloma. Like meeting on the street on the one-on-one and uh, all the neighbors that we had who came along and were so friendly. Their kind eyes, their cheerful words, the way that they demonstrated hope in a way that I haven't seen much uh, in others, haven't seen much in my own life. Their gratitude and their giving, all of it was so extravagant. And a beautiful reality of like what the kingdom of God really looks like. Blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I love the way that they would make sure they, there was food available for those who were coming late. That they would take care of each other, invite others in. To, so that they would experience hope. Karen, think of Fred, Adam, Susan. There's so much we can learn when we learn to commune with the poor about the way they care for each other. So, uh, yeah, last point. Last point, um, I'll recap. The poor teach us about our own poverty. It's a mirror, as is most of life. The poor teach us how to care for one another, and then the poor teach us how to share the wealth. They actually do teach us how to share the wealth. Mary sings about the hungry being filled and the rich walking away empty. If you spend time with the poor, you'll recognize that they're very generous with their time and their resources. I mean, Kathy here came and joined us last week and threw money in the, the offering. It was amazing. Um, I've, I've mentioned this already, 
but the poor have a way of just giving out of poverty that we, we don't know of. We just don't. And um, in his chapter in Simplicity, there's a book, me and a few guys are reading, it's um, John Mark Comer's Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. They, they talk about um, some well-known research. I think it's, a lot of it's uh, Barna and Gallup's. But if, you're, if you make a household income of 35 grand or more, you're in the top 1% uh, of wealth in the world, which is something interesting to think about. And I think most of us kind of heard that statistic. You know, it's like, yeah, we get we're the wealthiest. We understand that. Another statistic that's really interesting to me is that if you make 75,000 in the West, it may be a little bit more, that is the peak of where happiness is found. That's where it is. Not more than that, uh, not less than that. And there's two realities of that. The first is, it is actually helpful if people make more money, so they, they live here in the West, to be able to have money for their kids or transportation, for housing, for meals, even for some savings. But there's diminishing returns beyond that. And that's not to guilt anybody of that. It's not to shame anybody of that, but it's just to help give us a sober reality that like, with more money becomes more problems, as the prophet Biggie Small said. <laughs> because it's, it's the financial stockpiling that kills your joy. It's the stockpiling that kills our joy. Like, we get something, now we have to, like, maintain it and have to use it. If we don't use it, we feel guilt and awfulness about it. There's just a reality of that. So, but the greater reality is, in short, we are wealthy, and, and we live in a world where others are miserable. And the poor teach us what it means to be wealthy. To sh- and that comes from sharing with others. I think like when we, Courtney and I were talking on the way home, we were talking about like, you know, it's a very socio-politically divisive time, conversations about so many things, equity, race, politics, fiscal realities, the pandemic, the gender conversations, the sex and sexuality, marriage, you know, and it's like we, we can feel so passionate about those things. Like, no, we need to submit this under God's lordship, which is true. We do, no doubt. I do believe God has an opinion on those things. I don't think there is um, bifurcated as we think. I think, like, they're, they're, it's complex. There's complex realities to them. Some of them are pretty clear and dry. I'm not going to get into what I believe is not. You can ask me anytime. We had a QA, and a It was great. But I think what I want to say all that is like we love to have conversations about these things we're passionate about so that we can put these like little mason jars on the shelf. Meanwhile, there's this gallon that is our wealth. And we don't talk about that enough, about what does it mean to put our wealth under the lordship of Christ. We're passionate about issues about what our kids can do and what they have access to or mask and not mask. But we don't talk much about like, hey, how can we give more as a people? And that's what Jesus talked about the most. The only, the only other, quote, false god that's named the gospels is mammon, which is the god of money. You know? It's just interesting. And Jesus interacts with the centurion. He interacts with the leper. He interacts with the religious people. He interacts with the outcasts. He's, he has a loving relationship with a lot of people that society would deem uh, the other side. But when it comes to money, he's pretty clear that that's something that we're called to, to give for the sake of others. So I think um, as I end today in this conversation, 
I want us to not bypass the simple solution of giving more. Giving matters, it does. I ask to give the church, if you give your finances uh, to causes that matter, I'm really glad you do. Um, if you give to more people in the street, we should do that. But I think the goal of our giving is to commune with the poor and to spend time with them and maybe find ways that you can get to know people in your neighborhoods or your schools or your networks that have less and to invite them in and to hear their stories so that you can participate in something with them uh, rather than just give to them. Um, I, just, I don't want to give the simple solution of giving, but I, I, um, I also um, was felt really drawn to this exercise today, to end today as we discuss, is uh, what, what, what do you think God's inviting you into? And then I'm going to give you something that I believe God's inviting us all into. So um, the poor are typically people we write off. And I believe in our life we have a lot of people that we've written off we haven't thought about in a while, and they may not be poor, but maybe they are. And I thought today would be an opportunity just to take the last couple minutes that we usually would have sang a song and instead use it to write a letter to somebody that we might have written off so that God can prepare our hearts to be open to others that we wouldn't write, write off. So for me, I have a, somebody in my, uh, in my family who's really difficult for me. And um, I, I tend to write this person off, and they're like, I've known them since I've been a baby. And uh, I, I just felt God's call for me, like, hey, I want you to, like, write a letter to them, you know? Is there anybody in your life that you've written off that you would like to just write a letter to? I even got stamps if you need the stamps. And I can't write a letter. I don't have stamps. I got stamps. I got cool stamps. So it's like hip-hop stamps, stamps with, like, birds and animals. So take this time just to write a letter to somebody you might have written off or you might be prone to write off, and then I'll close this in prayer. Again, the goal is for us to be open to those that we'd write off but through this exercise. Oh, I'll put music on too. You want a letter, Drew? You want one?